Okay, so this morning we are reading Revelation chapter 6. So let's read it together. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given all authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer under the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We're going to pray together before John comes and speaks. Father, we thank you so much that we can be here this morning, that we can come before you, the Almighty God, creator of all the earth. Father, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us for how you've shown your great love for us and how you have shown us such mercy. Father, I just pray that as we look to you this morning, we would have our eyes opened and our minds greater expanded, Lord, as to who you are and how great you are. Father, we come this morning um, and pray for others. We pray this morning for those in our world, known to us, Lord, who are greatly persecuted because of their faith, whose lives are in danger, who are being so ill-treated because they follow you, Lord. Father, we pray especially for Jacob this morning. Um, I pray that you would completely heal him in hospital. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect his life as he serves you so faithfully there. Lord, we pray for our church this morning. We pray for every member, Lord. I pray that you would speak, whether we're here in this room right now or not. Father, I pray that um, whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, that we would always be quick to bring it to you. And Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for people um, in these increasingly difficult days, Lord. 
And in light of that, Lord, I pray for Friday night, Lord, for the it will spend less. Lord, I pray that many from community and church would come along to that, Lord, and it would be such a helpful time together, Lord. So, Father, we really want to leave our time in your hands right now, Lord, as we work through this part of Revelation. I pray that you guide John, help him, and speak through him right now, Lord, and help our hearts as we listen, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. How are we? You bound to be well rested. Like the nine thirty was bung this morning, but like that was just because the clocks went back. So you bound to be well rested and clued in here for Revelation chapter six this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask a question just before as we begin. Uh, it's a question, or well, I'll, I'll make a statement uh, and then I'll ask you a question. But I'm sure you'll agree with this statement. The reality of life is this. It's hard. Would anybody disagree with that uh, statement? Life is difficult. Life can be hard no matter whether we're a believer, unbeliever, whether we have plenty, whether we are in want. Life is just difficult. And what I want to propose this morning as we come to Revelation chapter 6 is this. What we have in the opening of the, of the, the scroll is, a first, is the first of a set of three uh, depictions of what the history of the world will look like from Christ's first coming to His second coming. What we have when we see the, the seven seals opened, the seven trumpets blown, and the, and the seven bowls revealed later on in Revelation, is to outline what jo- God's judgment and wrath will be like throughout the history of the church. Now, what I want to say is this. That's just my opinion. It's just my opinion. A completely futurist approach to Revelation would suggest that these, the opening of the seven seals that we're going to look at, the, the, the first six this morning, the opening of the first six would be this, the beginning, in a completely futurist perspective, would be the beginning of the great seven-year tribulation, which is to come in the future. I don't land there, and hopefully this morning we'll see why I don't land there. But as I say, it's just my opinion. I listened to Professor John Lennox this week doing an overview of chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Revelation. And when he came to things like we've looked at, we've looked at the, the living creatures, we've looked at the glassy sea before the throne, we've looked at all the, the, the imagery that was in 4, 5, and 6. And when Professor John Lennox came to these things, he said, now, what this means is, I don't have a notion. That give me great encouragement. <laughs> because when we come to these things in Revelation, we can say what we think they mean, and we can read around what we think they mean, and, and people will tell us what they think they mean, but at the end of the day, it's just opinion. So you're going to get my opinion this morning. That's what you pay your money for. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get my opinion on why I land where I land. But it's just opinion. Sam Storms, a pastor, theologian, has been really helpful uh, to me in just the way that I look at the book of Revelation, and in particular, these three sets of sevens that we see in the book of Revelation, the three sets of sevens being the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Think about if you were at a football match or you watch a football match on TV. Right. Nowadays, we have 57, and that's a, that's a that, that's, that's not even nowhere near camera angles. VAR, wonderful invention. But what we have is multiple camera angles of the same events. And so you have a camera up on the stand, you have a camera down at the pitch, you have those class cameras now that, that go out over the pitch like a drone thing, and, and you can see above the, 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 the football match, and you can see all different angles. And what Sam Storms says is that the set, these three sets of seven are like those different angles looking at the same set of events, only in progressive, more uh, sort of building to a crescendo, as it were. They look at the same events, but from different angles. 
And that's really helped me when we come to look at these three sets of seven, different angles, different perspectives on the same events. There's no real break between chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's not, this is one of those places where, where chapter uh, definitions do not help us. Uh, John is still in the throne room. We were there last week. He's still, he, he, it says, I watched the Lamb open the first of the seven seals. It's not as if the worship has ended. It's not as if something else has taken place. All of this is going on at the same time. Last week we read, there was one, only one found worthy to open the, the seals, that being Christ Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb is reigning in heaven, and at the same time, what we're going to see is that there is chaos and disorder on the earth. Chaos and disorder. What follows is like a seven-point sermon. We have the first opening of the first six seals, then there's like a, an interlude, and then a seventh is opened. But, but what we see in the first four seals being opened are horses. That's strange. Seems strange. Why four horses? We have, I think, the image of the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a lovely image for a Sunday morning. It'll cheer you up. Uh, but we have these four horsemen revealed, and, and that seems strange. But it's only strange to us because we do not associate horses with war. We do not associate horses with war. As the first century listeners, hearers of this, when, when they get, oh, there's a horse and there's a horseman, war. That's what they would have thought straight away, war. And what we'll see as the four horsemen come forward is war released on the earth. They, prefer, they prepare us for warfare. And that's why I said at the beginning, life is hard. Trial, tribulation, suffering is part of the believer's lot. It always has been, and it always will be, until Christ returns. You see, the problem of evil in the world is a problem for the atheist. It's not a problem for the believer, because we know the end. The atheist doesn't believe that, that evil will be conquered. The atheist doesn't believe that evil will come to an end, but the believer does. The believer knows the end of the story. The believer knows what will come. We, we believe in part that Christ, through His death and resurrection, has defeated evil, but we know that it will be completely defeated when He returns. So evil in the world, the problem of evil is not a problem for the believer. It is a problem simply for the atheist who believes and, and does have no hope that it will ever end. But what we'll see in Revelation chapter 6 is this. Evil on the earth only happens under the sovereign hand of God. Evil on the earth only happens under the sovereign hand of God. These events and what we will talk about this morning and the events that you can imagine in your life that have been evil will test your belief in the sovereignty of God like nothing else. Because either God is sovereign over everything, or He's sovereign over nothing. It's one or the other. We can't have it both ways. He's either sovereign over everything, or He's sovereign over nothing. And so, let's get into this, the four horsemen, what we see, the four horsemen of the apocalypse here in chapter 6. Right now, I watched, and the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a loud voice like thunder, come. So, the, the, one of the living creatures calls, John, come, let's see this. And this is what happens. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out to conquering and to conquer. Right. Who do you think is on the white horse? I hear a whisper, and I heard a whisper in the first service, because you're non-committal. You don't want to say. You're right not to say. You're right not to say. The whisper was the same in the first service as it was in the second service. Jesus. That's all I could hear. We whisper, Jesus. A lot of people have thought it is Jesus. Commentators 
throughout the church history, throughout church history have been divided, and they could not be any more polarly divided. Polarly. I'm not even sure that's a word, but anyway, we'll go with it. They could not have been any more divided on this issue. Like there's, there's two opposite ends of the spectrum, and that's where they are. Some believe it to be Jesus. Why do they believe it to be Jesus? Because they look at Revelation 19, and they see white horse, and they think crown, and so they believe it to be Jesus. There is an issue with that, though. The issue with that is a couple of things. The two, there's two different words used in Revelation, two different Greek words used in Revelation for crown. The first one used here is a victor's crown. You'll see there he is coming to conquer, or coming, conquering, and to conquer. This, was, this, this Greek word for crown here in Revelation 6 is a victor's crown. The, the crown in Revelation 19 is a crown for the king of kings. There's a difference. The, the rider on this white horse is carrying a what? A bow. The rider of the white horse in Revelation 19 has a double-edged sword. They're different. This one looks like the Messiah, but is in fact the Antichrist. He looks like the Messiah, but in fact he is an Antichrist-type figure. He looks real, but he is not. The figure that we're talking about here in Revelation 6 is like a parody figure. He looks like he will conquer, but he will not. We've got to look, again, there's another reason why this is not, there's another reason historically, contextually, why this probably isn't Jesus on this horse, is that the first here is we can't read this and interpret it, interpret it in a way that would not make sense to the first century readers and listeners of this letter. So, how would they have heard, how would they have made sense of this image, a white horse with a bow, with the rider carrying a bow? Let me, let me just explain. The Roman Empire had very close enemies uh, to, their, to the east side of them called the Parthians. And the Parthians were renowned for, for ha having warfare on horses. In one particular, war, in one particular battle, the, the Battle of Caray, the Romans had 50,000 troops. The Parthians had 10,000 troops. Now, that, you do the math. It's not looking great for the Parthians, right? 50,000 against 10,000. It's not looking good. Who won? The Parthians. They defeated the Romans who had five times as many troops as them. And how they defeated the Romans was because the Parthians, 9,000 of those 10,000 troops were on horseback with bows. The Parthians in that battle lost 38 men out of 10,000. Defeated the Roman Empire. But did they, defeat, did they defeat them completely? No. They only won a battle. But it was part of God's judgment on the Roman Empire. So how would you read this if you're listening to it for the first time in a Roman Empire uh, persecuted you know, you're being persecuted by the Roman Empire, how would you hear this? You would hear this, this is part of God's judgment. This character is not Jesus. He's a fake and cannot deliver what only Jesus can deliver. Jesus talks about this character, this character type in Matthew 24, when he says this, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name. Many fakes will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You see, there, will, there, there, there has been, there will be many come in Christ's name looking like a Messiah, but unable to deliver what only a Messiah can deliver. There is only one who can save. There is only one who can deliver, and that is Christ Jesus. And this is an antichrist-type figure who cannot deliver what he claims he can. 
we fall into this trap all the time, folks, in believing in this anti-Christ type figure. How many of us have fallen into the trap of thinking that if we only had a little bit more money in the bank, we would be secure? We would be safe. You are confronted with this anti-Christ type spirit type character all the time. There will be many common who will, many will try and attempt to lead the church of Christ astray. If you rely on, uh, put your weight on anything other than Christ, you are believing in an anti-Christ type figure. And so this rider on a white horse is ushering in the rest that are to come. The other three will be uh, he's ushering in warfare on the church, and the other three will be uh, results of that warfare. And so when you read this, read chapter 6, don't think of this as Christ, but think of it as this antichrist type figure. There's a difference. Moving on, second horseman. The second horseman, or the second horse. Uh, as I say, the first raider introduces war, the horse being a symbol for war, into the equation. The remaining three, opening of the, the, the second, third, and fourth seal, are specific consequences of war. When he opened the second, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, the color of blood. Bright red, the color of blood. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The word here, slay, literally means slaughter. To kill, to murder. Folks, this has been the reality of our world. This is the reality of the world. There are many people today who will be killed in warfare that we know nothing about. There are wars raging over our planet right now that we don't know anything about. And even the ones we do know something about, we take very little care to, to actually think about them. People are being slaughtered this day all over the world. And this is nothing new. And it will be nothing new, and it will happen, it will continue, and it will get worse until Christ returns. See, this, this is one of the reasons, and I'm hoping you're tracking with me here, this is one of the reasons why I think this cannot be a specific time just at the end, because it's always been, and it always will be. The third seal. The third is an interesting one. And when I opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the wine and the oil. Now, this is really interesting, because what this is, what this is signifying is famine, a result of war. There is a restriction on food. It's not completely limited, but there is a restriction. And what you see, do you see those, those measurements that are used? The scales are coming out, and that's a, that's a symbol of measurement. And do you see those measurements that are used there? Let me, let me just read them for you again. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. What that is signifying is a price hike. Those, those, those prices are 6 to 18, apparently, times what would have been paid in the then-known Roman Empire. And so what you see is a price hike for food. It is scarce. It's not completely unavailable, but it is scarce. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar? Now, said in the first service, if I was a really like hellfire brimstone preacher type, what I would do now is scare the out of you by... Uh, by saying this is the times we're living in and this is what's happening right now and prices are being hiked and doing this and doing that and you'd be afraid and you like, yeah, right. No, what has happened throughout the whole of history? Do you want me, I'll give you a really quick visual demonstration of the economic like trajectory throughout all of history. 
This is what it's like. Look, it's really complicated. It's, it's this. You with me? That's, that's all of history. Economics explained, all right? You don't need to go to economic lectures. You don't need to do any of that. You just, that, right? That's it. But that's the way it's been. Throughout all of the church time. So we go through really good periods where everything's like cheap, relatively cheap, and everybody's getting on well, and blah, blah, blah. That was not that long ago. Then everything starts to rise. People get it tight. Like we see people complaining about the price of milk. And inevitably it'll go down again. And inevitably it'll rise again. This is the course of history. This is what it's been like. This is what it will always be like. Do you notice in the text it says, what, what is to be protected? What is to be protected in the text? The oil and the wine. Some of us are very glad about this in the room. <laughs> not, even a, not even a smile. Just a so. Are you awake? Seriously. Right. Why is that? In history, who has always got richer? The rich. Who has always got poorer? Under whose hand? Under the sovereign hand of God. This is simply detailing what has happened throughout history. You with me? You see that? You can, no? No? Nobody can see it? No. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Nobody with me. Brilliant. This is what has happened. It can, this, is, this is why, again, this cannot be a specific time, and at a specific time in the future. It is what has always been. And it's going to get worse. The fourth seal. Unlike the other horse, horses and their riders, the fourth one is given a name, and his name is Death. And he's quickly followed by Hades, the abode of the dead. And said to, Hades is said to follow him. A couple of things to note. Uh, the, the Greek here for pale literally means yellowy green, sicky sort of like color. That's what it means, pale horse. That's apparently what it looks like, lovely horse to have, I would imagine. But this horseman is given authority from God to inflict death. Let's just read it. On a quarter of the earth. When, it, when I, he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and look, behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given the authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, what I will say about the fourth horseman is this. We look at that and we think, right, okay, he's given the, the, the judgment and the, and the wrath is restricted somewhat because it's only a fourth. And we think that a fourth of the population wiped out by death or by whatever means here, that's awful. But we don't read that it will be a one-off event. We don't read that this is going to happen in a one-off event. Michael Wilcock writes this, the wiping out of a quarter of the human race sounds like a disaster of the first magnitude until one realizes that nothing has been said to indicate that this is a single catastrophic event. After all, Every man dies sooner or later. And what is probably meant here is that a sizable proportion of those deaths are unnecessary ones caused by war, famine, and all kinds of evil. So what we're seeing in the, in the fourth horseman is not a one-off event where this fourth horseman is given uh, the ability or the, the authority to go and kill a quarter of the population at one time, rather than it is a quarter, of, just it's, it's a killing of people unnecessarily through these things over a period of time. So what do these four horsemen of the apocalypse reveal? Well, they reveal what Jesus had predicted in the Olivet Discourse when he said this. 
when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the earth, of birth pains. Mark 13, verse 7 and 8. A similar background is given in Zechariah. Zechariah 1, verse 8. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. See, Jesus is saying these things have to happen, but they are not the end. They are not the end. They will happen, and they will happen throughout history, but they are not in and of themselves the end. These sufferings, this suffering is not final. It is not ultimate. It is not the lake of fire. But these things have always existed throughout church history those who come in His name, multiple, will be multiple. War, famine, pestilence have always existed and will always exist until Christ returns. But what purpose do they serve under the sovereign hand of God? What purpose is there in them? I think it's threefold. I think the purpose in these things, this suffering that is perpetual, that goes on until Christ returns, serves as a warning to those who do evil. There will be judgment. There will be judgment. There will be a day come when these things will stop and those who do them will be judged. Second of all, it is a test of those who claim to be genuine believers. You've heard me say over and over again, and I will stand on this and I will hammer this nail until the Lord calls me home. We do not grow in ease and pleasure. We do not grow in our sanctification in ease and pleasure. We do not become more like Christ when we have it easy. We become more like Christ when we follow in His ways and we suffer. It is only then we grow when we follow in His ways. And it is a test to those who claim to be believers. Suffering is a test. Like, even think about it. Think about our, our, our reality over the last three to four years. Stories I hear over and over again from other churches is that they cannot get believers back to church because they've got out of the way of going. Really? Might that suggest that there is a sifting going on? Might that suggest that there is a shaking up of the church going on? Might that suggest that these things are happening, suffering happens to see who's real? Like there are brothers and sisters in Christ today who will lose their lives for following Christ, and we can't make it out on a Sunday morning. And I, I, ironically, preaching to the choir here, by the way, you're here. So this is what happens, right? This, just a wee insight. And so I'll say things like that, and you'll be like, oh, no, no, no. You're here. Well done, you. We know nothing of real, genuine persecution. one of them things where you're like, and this is a really dangerous thing to pray for or ask for, but it's like one of those things where you're almost like, Lord, bring it on. Because then we will see. Then we will actually see who's legit. Third thing it serves, these sufferings serve as our refinement, cleansing for those who are true believers. As I say, we grow 
in our suffering. We become more like Christ in our suffering. So there's the four men of the, the apocalypse. Uh, the first one, the white one, bringing in war. The rest, the consequences of war. And, and I hope that you can see where I've come to the conclusion that this cannot be some further event that's down the road because these things have always happened and will always happen. We're in the midst of it. It's not something that's far out there. It's right now. It has always been and always will be. Then the fifth seal is opened. And then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar, let's pause there, what, there's an altar in heaven? Why would there be an altar in heaven? Well, when the temple was being made for the first time, God said, let's make it the same as it is in heaven. And so we can read from this that there's, a ten, there's an altar in heaven, and, and the souls of those who have gone before are under that altar. As I said, Professor John, uh, John Lennox said, I don't have a clue, but he says we can just take what's in the text as what's in the text. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for, they, for the witnesses they had, they had borne. And when they, cr they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had. I touched on this last week and said about the, the definite number of martyrs that there was to come in before the second coming. But who are those under the altar? The text tells us that those were, they were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. But who is that? Well, they could be martyrs in the sense that we think of. Martyrs as in those who have been directly killed for professing Christ. Or they could be all true martyrs in the sense of the word that is used in the Greek. That is, all true witnesses of the gospel. All true witnesses of the gospel. What other scriptures would help us to decide which one it is? Or it could be both. Mark 8, 34, 35 says this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and do what? Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would what? Will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Or as the author of Revelation elsewhere says in 1 John 3, 16, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Lay down your life, take up your cross, lose your life so that you will find your life. These are all instruments of execution that the Christian, the true Christian, is called to. So in that sense, all true Christians are what? Martyrs. All true Christians are martyrs because they are called to give up their lives. They are called to die to themselves. They are called to take up their cross. They are called to die to their own passions. They are called to die to sin. They are martyrs, all true believers. And yes, there are those of us who will die, those around the world who will die a death at the hands of evil men because they follow Christ. But we, if we are true believers, are called to lay down our lives. Let me ask us all a question. Do you think we are? Do you think you are? Do you think you're laying down your life for Christ? Jesus says, those who come after me, take up your cross. Stop playing. Stop messing. Take up your cross. Follow me. And these martyrs, these true followers of Christ, cry out, how long, O Lord? How long before you judge and avenge our blood? 
They're crying out for justice because they know justice is a good thing. They, they, this, this cry echoes throughout Scripture. It, it, it's in Habakkuk. It's in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long must we go before you avenge and you put everything right that is wrong? How long, O Lord, will you let the unrighteous rule? How long, O Lord, will you let them have their way on the earth? How long, how long, how long? This cry rings out. We question for us, are these true believers disobeying Jesus' command to love their enemies? Are they disobeying Jesus' command to pray for those who persecute them? Are they disobeying Jesus' command to turn the other cheek? No. It sounds like they are because they're crying for vengeance and justice, but they are not because they are not crying for personal vengeance. They are crying that the name of God would be avenged. And He is the one who says, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And so like the psalmist in Psalm 94, those under the altar of the Lord are saying, we know vengeance is yours, but we don't see it. We know you are going to avenge your name, but it's how long? How long before you right every wrong? And I love the reply that the Lamb gives here. It's so gracious. It's so gracious. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. They were given the white robe of righteousness of Christ and told to rest. Just be patient. It's coming. It's coming. This phrase, however, does mean one thing, that there is more suffering for the people of God to come. Maybe this is a question that you on a global scale have asked, how long, O Lord? Maybe you've looked out at the world and thought, how long can this go on? Seriously, the wrong that prevails the sin and evil that there is, how long can we put up with this, O Lord? But also, maybe you've asked it on a personal level, how long, O Lord, is this person going to have dominion over me? How long, O Lord, is this situation going to go on? How long, how long, how long, how long until you avenge? And the reply to us is the same as it was to these brothers and sisters in Christ. It is rest a little longer. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Rest a little longer. Vengeance is mine. There is a day that justice will come. There is a day that every wrong will be made right. And that leads us to the fifth or the sixth seal and the final one for today. The sixth seal is the final day. What we have is the first four, and I was talking to someone in between the services about this. The first four are the span of history and what is happening and, and the, the suffering and evil that exists in the world. There's a shift then in the fifth seal where it shows us back into the throne room and, and, the, and, the, and the martyrs are crying, how long? And then the sixth seal shifts again, and this is the final judgment. This is the final judgment. When he opened the sixth seal, look at it. Look at it. I want you to look at it. And I want you to get the gravity of what's going on here. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and a full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, 
fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Folks, this is the day of judgment. This language that is used is taken from the Old Testament and from several passages, including Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34, all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll and the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree and the stars in the sky fell to earth. What we have here is a vivid figurative depiction of the last judgment. Folks, when God's wrath falls, it is terrifying. Terrifying. Those who experience it and who will experience it from what we see here want to hide themselves from it. Again, the, the early readers, the, 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 the churches that would have read this, would have, the, the imagery, they just would have got it around Patmos where, where John is and around uh, modern-day Turkey. It was renowned for the caves and, and, and the enclaves that there were. And so when they hear that people wanted to run to the caves, they wanted to run, and they, and they wanted the earth to fall on them because they could not face the wrath of, of God, they would have understood the gravity of what they're listening to. It is horrific. Horrific. And it doesn't matter. I love the way it's phrased here. It doesn't matter. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they wanted to hide themselves. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how well off you are. It doesn't matter if you have nothing. It doesn't matter if you're a king or you have all the power in the world. It will not save you from the wrath of God. Simple. And it is so bad that they want to go into the caves and they want the caves to fall on them. It is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And there's a question that's asked at the end. Imagine, just put yourself there. You want the rocks, the mountains to fall on you. And to him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of whom? The Lamb. This does away with our gentle Jesus meek and mild. This does away with our baby Jesus in a manger. Where will the wrath fall from? Who will the wrath fall from? The Lamb. And the question is this. Who can stand? Who can stand? Answer, in ourselves, no one. No one. Let me be as clear as I can possibly be. Every single one of us in this room deserve the wrath and judgment of God. We deserve to be in the position where we would want the rocks and the mountains and everything to fall on us because we could not bear the sight of the wrath of the Lamb. But here is the good news. We can stand only one way, and that is if we are covered in the blood of Christ. Yes? Amen. We are covered in the blood, and we are the only ones, if we're covered in the blood, who can stand on that day without the fear, without anything, without the fear of the wrath of the Lamb coming upon us because we're covered in the blood of Jesus. Look happier! But I'll say this, if you're not covered in the blood of Jesus, be afraid. Be afraid. This is horrendous. Hell is real. 
And if there's anyone in this room, anyone in this room who does not know Jesus, who does not know what it's like to be covered in the blood of the Lamb, come to him today. Come to him today because I love you and I want to tell you that this is awful. But you can be saved from it through Jesus' blood. Folks, one of the questions in last week's home group, connect groups, was should last week motivate us to mission? Nothing should motivate us more than the fact that there will be one day where the terrifying wrath of God will fall. And those who are not covered by the blood of the Lamb will experience its horrendous effect. Let's be people who go from this building and share the good news of Jesus Christ that they too could stand in this terrible day of wrath. Four horsemen. The reality of life. The reality of life from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming. Those who will come in his name try to lead us astray. War, famine, pestilence. There are those before the throne right now crying, how long will you let this go on? How long until you wrap it up? Then the judgment. The day of the wrath of the Lamb. Thank Jesus. When you take communion today, thank Jesus that He gave Himself so that you could be covered in His blood and be fit to stand on that day. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and you are kind. And you have given us warning after warning after warning to come to you. I thank you that so many have. But I pray today for anyone in this room who is not yet saved by your blood, I pray that they would come to you. Father, I pray for this town. I pray that your spirit would fall, would move, convict people, show people Christ, show people their need of a Savior. And I pray that you would save. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.